<laughs> I feel like it's wrong to start talking until the atmospherical music fades. So, um, everybody doing okay? Everyone's all right? Good? Good? So those of you in the back corners, we put little TVs up where you can see my face. You may not have ever known what I looked like until today, or maybe you did. That's why you sit back in the corners. I don't know. Um, but uh, those TVs are important because I tell some pretty funny stories, and you don't get the full effect if you can't see my facial expressions. Um, so those anecdotes don't have the, the impact that they, that they could if you could see my face. Also, um, I can make you feel a lot of conviction because now I can look into the cameras and my eyes can <laughs> glare at you in the back corners. So um, it's good. They felt all the conviction up in here. Um, and you guys in the back, you've been missing it. So, uh, all right. Everyone's good, right? It's, it's Halloween, so we're, I don't, that's fun. Um, I think next year or, or the next time it falls on a weekend, I think we should all dress up. Just come to church in costumes. That would be fun. I did a wedding a couple of years ago in Franklin. Um, and everyone knows everyone's rich in Franklin. So we, we did this. <laughs> I did this wedding, and it was outdoors on the square. It was a young couple that used to come here. They moved to another state. And a very eclectic, very fun couple. And they said, well, since our wedding is on Halloween, we're just going to dress up. So I was officiating it. So I didn't want to go overboard. I didn't want to stick out. So I wore a solid black suit, but I got this tie that had a battery in it and it looked like a like something from Tron so it was like neon and it was like it lit up and I worried about being over the top when I got to this wedding and the wedding was outside downtown Franklin and um when people were dressed up it was like something out of a movie like people were dressed up as like centaurs and like these crazy like C.S. Lewis characters and um one of the guys in the wedding was a seven foot tall penguin and I mean it like huge <laughs> And so um, I, took, I was taking pictures all before the wedding because I didn't think my wife would believe me when I told her about it. And so because it was outdoors, people are driving by like in their nice cars in downtown Franklin looking at the freak show that is this wedding. <laughs> and it was one of the funnest weddings I've ever done. I mean, there were people dressed up as M&Ms and like all this stuff and we're just, we're having a wedding. So it was, uh, it was a blast. I don't know why I'm telling you guys all this. We are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. <laughs> we have been... Uh, <laughs> You're my last service of the weekend, so I just, I just want, I, yeah, I just want to talk to you for a little bit, right? I just want to talk. I just want to hang out. So uh, <laughs> we're in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been working through it for a couple of weeks now. This is a letter written from a guy named Paul to a church in northeastern Greece. Now, if you've never read the New Testament of the Bible, the New Testament of the Bible is predominantly letters written to different groups of Christians about how to live, how to encourage them. And this is really no different. The church in Thessalonica, though, was a young church, not by age, but in their faith, very young in their faith. So Paul wrote them a couple of letters, right, encouraging them, instructing them. And in uh, 1 Thessalonians, in the first two chapters, Paul mentions something interesting at the end of the first two chapters. He mentions the second coming of Jesus and how we are to live righteously and be prepared for the second coming of Jesus. Now, in the first chapter, it's, uh, it's pretty abrupt. He talks about God's wrath, coming wrath. That's, that's a little intimidating to talk about. Kind of has a negative connotation to it. In chapter two, though, he talks about Jesus's return in more of a positive light. And he talks about it that we have this joy, we have this fulfillment, we have this peace if, here's the caveat, if we completely surrender to God. Not 90% or 99%, but if we 100% 
give our lives over to God, right? If we completely receive what he has for us, who he is, and if we give it all to him, we have joy in this life, we have peace in this life, contentment, and then of course in the afterlife, we have these things as well. Now chapter three that we're gonna do today is very, very short, and you should have a notes handout, everything's on the screen, everything's on the app, if you don't have the app. Chapter three is very, very short, but there's, there's a lot packed into to these 13 verses. And what we're gonna talk about today is we're gonna talk about righteous living. Basically living the way God wants us to live, living by God's moral standard, right? And so we're gonna ask ourselves today, chapter three is going to address this big question of, is it possible for us to live righteously? Um, because a, a really bad piece of theology that I hear Christians say a lot, and it's not biblically supported, I hear a lot of Christians say, ah, oh, we're just broken, dirty sinners. You're not. According to Romans chapter six, you're not. If you have become new in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. The old things are past, right? That we are no longer slaves to our former selves. Romans chapter six says this. So we're going to address this idea again of how do we live righteously? I've already answered the question, can it, is it possible? Yes. So today we're gonna to talk about how do we live righteously? How do we live the way God wants us to live, okay? So again, you should have everything you need to follow along. Um, if you have a Bible, we're in the New Testament towards the back, right after the book of Colossians. Yep, right after the book of Colossians. It's First Thessalonians, just checking again. I always forget the order, so I just gotta go back and check. I'm double checking just because I said that. Yep, still correct. Um, we are in chapter three today. I'm gonna pray because uh, Lord knows I need help, and then we'll go over chapter three, and um, we'll end a little early today, and we'll take communion together, okay? All right, so let me pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, thank you that we can laugh in church, Lord. Um, thank you, God, that we can be comfortable in this place, Lord. Thank you for the freedom that we have to do what we're doing right now. Um, God, keep your hand on us. As we go over your word today, Lord, just let us absorb it. Let us, uh, let us learn from it, God. Lord, let it instruct us and teach us and discipline us, God, in the way we need to go. Lord, I pray that our study of your word honors you today. Lord, we don't just pray for our church. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities, God. And um, we just pray that you just keep your hand on us, Lord. All this is for your honor, for your glory, God. And of course, we benefit from that as well, Lord. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm gonna read a little bit. We'll go back, we'll break it down. I think you'll find this very short chapter interesting, okay? Therefore, Paul says, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Now, if you haven't been here, Paul had been to this area of Thessalonica before this letter, but he had gotten beat up. He and Silas and Timothy had gotten beat up and ran out of town. So apparently the persecution got pretty bad because Paul says we reached a point to where we could no longer stand the persecution. So Silas and Timothy and Paul go to Athens. Now listen, that doesn't mean that Paul is a coward. Paul knew that he had more ministry to do and it's hard to do ministry when you're dead, 
right? So he knew it was time to get out of that situation and he would revisit it later. We also have to use wisdom, right? We have to use wisdom when we get into certain situations and we, we need wisdom to know that we shouldn't be in certain, certain situations. Let me give you an example. So I'm not a small guy and I also have a black belt in Taekwondo. And so if I am with my wife and my two little girls and we pull up to a gas station at night and there happens to be three shady looking guys hanging out by the door, me, pretty able to defend myself against one or maybe two individuals, but probably not three, right? Me, not being a coward, but being wise because I wanna keep being a dad and a husband, I'm just gonna go to another gas station, right? I'm gonna be wise, this situation doesn't look safe, I'm gonna go somewhere else. It doesn't mean that I'm a coward, it means that I wanna keep living and be a dad and a husband, right? And so this is the kind of wisdom we need to use. If you're a 115 pound young lady, maybe your best ministry opportunity, maybe it's not wise to go minister to the homeless in East Nashville at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday, right? Maybe that's just not the wisest way to accomplish that mission. And that doesn't mean you're a coward, doesn't mean you don't love the homeless in East Nashville on a Friday night. It means that maybe that's not the safest thing for you, right? Wisdom. That's why God gave us brains. So Timothy, on the other hand, could go back to Thessalonica. He was not famous like Paul was. He was younger. He was in his mid-30s, we think. Uh, but he was very, very mature in his faith. So Paul could send Timothy back because he was more conspicuous. So Timothy eventually became the pastor of the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, if you've ever read that. But before that, he was sent to Thessalonica to encourage, teach, care for, love, and just be a shepherd to the church there. The reason why this was important to Paul is so that the young Christians in Thessalonica would not be shaken by all the things that were going on. So this is for all of us in the room, right? We all need love, we need encouragement, we need someone to teach us the word of God and we need to listen to it and study because the world is confusing and the world is hostile. So this is why Timothy went to be a shepherd to these individuals. And this is also why church today is still important. Another bad piece of theology, whenever Christians say, I love God, but I don't, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, that is nowhere biblically supported, nowhere. In fact, all throughout the entire Bible, getting together at least on a weekly basis with other believers has been commanded from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it says we should be doing it more and more as Christ's return approaches. Why? Because one, we need God, right? I think all of us, if you're a Christian in this room, you agree. We need God. We need the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need the instruction of the word of God, but we also need each other. I need you, believe it or not, you need me, right? We are family, we are to walk this thing out together. We need the church. And so Paul says, I told you in advance that it's gonna get hard. Paul had gotten beat up and thrown out and Paul had been gotten beat up and thrown out of a lot of towns. And so he knew that this persecution was coming and he told the church in Thessalonica about this. So it should have been no surprise to these Christians that persecution and affliction happens because of their faith, right? So here's the thing. Aggression should not be a, a surprise to Christians nowadays either. In the United States, Christians are just flabbergasted that we get treated poorly because of our faith. But Jesus clearly said, if they hate you, just know it's because they hated me first. 
Jesus was very clear of the fact that you will be hated for his namesake by certain people. Jesus talked about it, Paul talked about it, Peter talked about it, James talked about it, John talked about it. Virtually every author of the New Testament mentions this in some form or fashion. So the question isn't, are we going to be treated poorly for our faith sometimes? The question is, are the hearts of Christians in the United States ready for it? Let me go ahead and answer that for you, no. Because for the last two years, right, we think that, oh boy, we think that someone telling us to wear a mask or any talks of, of medicine or vax, and listen, I'm not taking a stance either way of it, but we are so sensitive and so hyper offended by everything. Now, everything is persecution, right? If you say anything that I disagree with, I'm gonna cover my ears and la, 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 la. And we have done this as Christians. That is not persecution. The last two years have shown us that our hearts are not ready for real trouble. Someone in this back corner, amen me. Boom, thank you, you can see me now. So, okay, anyways. So I don't know if our hearts are prepared in the United States for hard times. I hope we get there, right? Jesus warned us about it. Another thing Paul says is he wanted to send Timothy to this church because he feared that the devil, that's the tempter, right? Had tempted them. Paul was concerned huh, that the world had seduced or distracted the church. This is very, very important. If us in this room, if we are not disciplined, I don't mean disciplined like punishment, I mean disciplined like self-control. If we are not disciplined in this room, it is so easy to get seduced by the world. I'm not just talking about a sexual seduction. If, you, if, if your life is lived on social media, right, it's gonna eventually be a metaverse. If you haven't read about that, you should read on that. It's freaky weird stuff, right? But, but, but if our lives are lived on social media, if my life is lived on social media, it is so easy to get sucked into this bull crap because it looks like everyone's on vacation all the time, right? Everyone smiles as they walk down the street and everything's happy all the time and it's a facade. And they go out and people party and they drink and they're promiscuous and we see it and we're like, man, that looks like they're having so much fun. We don't see the hangover the next morning. We don't see the regret of sleeping with the woman that we don't even know what her name is. We don't, we don't see the divorce rate. You know the, you, do you know the name Facebook is in one out of three divorce papers, by the way? Anyways, we don't see that side of it. And it is easy to get seduced into something that is really destructive, the world. Not only is it easy to get seduced, it is so easy to get distracted. In the 1950s and 60s, 30-minute television shows were actually 28 minutes long. The two minutes was for advertising and they were 28 minutes long because that was about the attention span of the average person when they watch TV at night, okay, 28 minutes. In the 1970s and 80s, 28 minutes went down to about 25 minutes because the attention span of people had shortened by about three minutes per, per every half hour. And then of course, money always drives everything, so more advertising. In the 1990s and 2000s, and if you go back and if you look at your TV shows and see how long they are, they're 22 minutes now. Because now the attention span has shrunk even more because we have so much going on that we can't focus on anything longer than 22 minutes. Now though, we don't even watch sitcoms. We watch shorts and reels, right? that are three to five minutes. Advertising now is anywhere between 10 and 15 seconds because the attention span of people is so short because we have our phones open, right? As we're watching Stranger Things, as we're listening to something on the radio, as we have a book open, we're not reading it, but it just makes us feel smart. It's over there on the side and we're doing all these things, right? And then we ask ourselves, why can we not hear the voice of God? 
It's fascinating, is it not? So listen, to avoid the seduction and to avoid the distraction, we have to stop. And we have to intentionally set aside time to pray. We have to intentionally set aside time to listen. David in the book of Psalms said, be still, be still. We hate being still in our culture. Be still and just know that he's God. Shut up for a second. Sometimes Christians are always like, I can't hear God. And God's like, if you'll shut up for a second, I'll talk to you. I'll tell you something. We have to set aside time to read the word of God and do the word of God. And we also have to have accountability, which means we need to have real relationships. And if we do these things, we will not be seduced. We will not be distracted. We will remain stable. And that's what we see with this church. Okay, let me keep reading. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith? So Paul sends Timothy to go get kind of a barometer, right? A temperature of what the church in Thessalonica is looking like. Timothy comes back, and you can almost feel Paul's excitement in this part I just read, to hear that the people are doing well. How are they doing well? They are holding firm to their, to their faith and to their love. Now listen, faith and love are two words that we use a lot in culture, but we have no idea what they mean, right? We throw them around a lot, but we don't talk about what they mean. Faith is our belief and, and our attitude towards God. It is our attitude towards God. Love is how we express our beliefs. Let me say that one more time, right? Faith is our beliefs. Love is the expression of those beliefs. In a very practical way, that means if I say I love God, if my belief is in the word of God and the things of God, I will naturally treat other people with respect and dignity and love because Jesus said the first commandment is to love God. The second commandment is similar to it. It is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? So if, if I truly believe, my beliefs will be played out in how I love. If I truly love Jesus, I will treat my wife like Christ treats the church. If I truly love Jesus, I will respect my husband. If I truly love Jesus, I will value the poor and the needy, the naked and the imprisoned, right? You see what I'm saying? If our faith is here, and because here's the thing, our faith always dictates our action, always. But if we do not believe in God and if we do not believe in the word of God, it's no wonder that things are falling apart to the level that they are, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So Paul and Timothy got together and they talked about the church's love and desire to see Paul. Paul wanted to see them. They wanted to see Paul. They loved each other, right? Almost like a, like a son-parent or, or daughter-parent relationship, right? This is how much they loved each other. Now, this is how the church is supposed to function, that we are to be like brothers and sisters, moms and dads, right? We are family. How do we achieve such a thing? Well, it begins with us intentionally putting ourselves second. 
This again flies in the face of the culture you live in, right? The individualistic me first culture where Jesus says, put yourself second. This is the irony of Christianity. The irony of Christianity is if you choose to be last, God makes you first. If you choose to give it all up, God gives you everything. That is the irony of Christianity. When we choose to be second, right? Jesus even said, when you choose to take the seat of humility, I will put you in the seat of nobility, right? This is the way God works. We must place ourselves second. And we must realize that how we live impacts others. So we have to ask, do we genuinely love people? If it's your first time here, we're an honest church. I, I think we're an honest church, right? And honestly speaking, it's not easy to love people. Maybe I'm the only one, right? It's difficult. Last two years have been tough. Humanity has not been on its A game the last two years. It's been tough. Christians have not been on their A game for the last two years. So we first have to ask, do we love all people? Do we love the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Muslim, the gay, the misogynistic? Do we love the hypocritical Christian, right? Do we love them all? Do we love everybody? And if we find ourselves not having that kind of love, because I think there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians that spit a lot of vitriol and venom, and I would say that they do not love people that much, right? We are commanded to love, so how do we do that? We may have to clear out a space somewhere, get on our face and say, God, you have to put a love for people in my heart. In 2003, um, I got saved in 2002, late 2002, uh, after a suicide attempt, after my third suicide attempt, if you've never been to a next class, I was saved and, and I loved God, absolutely loved God. I'm gonna tell you what, didn't like people. Really didn't like Christians, quite frankly. Been hurt, um, um, just saw a lot of hypocrisy, didn't care for Christians. I found myself in a prayer room at the church I got saved in, about a 10 by 10 room and fake plants encompassed about 40% of that room. And I walked into this room, cleared away some fake plants. I literally laid on my face and I said, God, you told me to love people, I don't love them. You have to do this to me. And God did, he put a love for humanity in my heart. God will do that for you too, but you have to ask him for that. You have to want that. So the fact that the church stood firm in their faith brought Paul a lot of joy. Not only did he thank God that they had stuck to their guns, right? That they had endured. He begged God for the opportunity to see them again. He wanted to see them, as he says, face to face. Let me ask you again, not only do we love people, do we find joy in other people knowing Jesus? Is it something that like, like makes our heart leap out of its chest when we find out that a coworker got baptized or when we build a relationship with someone and they see their lives changed by the power of Christ or has church in the United States become a self-centered culture? I'm gonna answer this one for you too. It absolutely has. Church in the United States is all, has become all about the consumption, right? How much we can consume. And let me tell you this. If you're a new Christian, you get three years. You get three years to be a consumer. And after three years, it's time to go out and be a producer. Where am I getting this from? I'm getting this from Jesus and his disciples. He walked with them for three years, right? And at the end of that, and those guys didn't do much in those three years. In fact, Jesus got onto them a lot for messing stuff up. They were infants in their faith. But Jesus poured into them for three years, three and a half years technically, crucified on the cross, resurrected. Now he said, guys, it is time to leave. It is time to leave this area. It is time for you to go out, he says, like sheep among wolves. It is time to go out. What does Jesus say to Mary Magdalene? who was not one of the 12, but she was still a disciple of Jesus, right? 
What did, what did Jesus say to Mary Magdalene, the resurrected Christ, as Mary tried to hold on to him? He said, you gotta let go of me, right? You gotta let go, you got things to do. You have to go out. It's now time for you to produce, not to consume, but to produce. Of course, we're always being filled up, but we have to be constantly being poured out. But what we have done in the United States is we have made going to church a consumption. What can I get out of this? And if that pastor says one thing I don't like, I'm gonna go to New Vision until Pastor Brady says something that I don't like, and then I'm gonna go over, see David Young over at North Boulevard, and he's gonna say something you don't like. You're gonna shoot on over to Alan Jackson, listen to him until he says something you don't like, and on and on it goes. If you go to any other country than the United States and you tell them that, they will look at you like you are purple. Because in most other cultures, they actually deal with problems in the church, right? Not just constantly run from them every time someone hurts their feelings or does something that they don't like. But when it becomes all about us, right? When it comes all about us. So though the Thessalonians were moving in a great direction, Paul says you're still lacking some things, right? We still need to teach you. We still need to warn you. We still need to instruct you. We still need to shepherd you. And what this does is it reminds us that we have to be careful to think that we have arrived. I think a lot of times people get into church for a little bit. You know, I went when I was a kid. I got baptized. I did all these things, right? I'm good, right? I read through the Bible one time. I'm sure you caught everything that one time you read it. Sure, you got it all to memory. But believe it or not, you can learn more, right? That we are to be constantly evolving to look more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're to be, it's called sanctification. We are to be constantly evolving until either we drop dead or Jesus splits the sky and comes back for us. We're to constantly be gravitating more to be like Jesus. And we are to be constantly preparing for his return, okay? Last part. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, amen. Paul is three out of three. Three chapters, three times that he talks about the second coming of Jesus. Look at what Paul says. Paul prays to God the Father and his Lord Jesus Christ to direct his way back to Thessalonica. What Paul is doing right here is he is expressing to God how much he wants to go back to that corner of Greece. But what he is also doing is he's saying, God, only if it's your will. Now listen, all of us in this room, there is nothing wrong with us expressing our desires to God. There's nothing wrong with you praying about one day wanting to retire in you know, Wailea, Hawaii, or there's nothing wrong with you expressing that you wanna have children one day, or that you wanna marry you know, a certain kind of person, or there's nothing wrong with you expressing uh, even a, de a desire to be healed of a physical ailment or any of that. There is nothing wrong with expressing your desires to God. If we qualify every prayer with, if it's your will. I hope everyone heard that. There is nothing wrong with saying, God, I would love to have this, right? If it's your will. Now, here's the important thing about the will of God. It says in John chapter 14 that anything we pray in Jesus's name will be given to us. Now, that scripture has been grossly misinterpreted by a bunch of prosperity 
jack wagons that teach this stuff, right? They say, if you just pray it, that's a nice way of not swearing, right? So a lot of these pastors say, man, just say it. Just say it in Jesus' name and you'll have it, right? Just pray that that 2007 Toyota is a 2021 Ferrari after church, and if you say it in Jesus' name, you're gonna get it. That's bogus, right? That's not real. That's not how it works. What the scripture in John 14 means is whatever you pray in the will of God, you will receive it because God wants it for you. So we pray everything in God's will, in his name, And what God wants for us, we receive. That's why we seek the will of God. We can express our desires, but God, whatever you want, right? And that sounds really easy until it is something like a physical healing. Or if you're a woman that's never been able to have children and you say, God, let your will be done. It's hard sometimes when when it's not exactly what we want, right? But we have to trust that his will is perfect and that his will is good. Here's another one. After all these hard lessons and this preparation and this talk of the second coming, right? After the talk of persecution, Paul prays and encourages that the church grow in their love of God and grow in their love for other people as time goes on. Going back to how difficult it is to love people right now, not only is it difficult to love people right now, it is increasingly difficult to stick to biblical principles. But what the Bible says is, As the world grows more hostile, as people grow more hostile, not only are we to love God more in the hostility, listen, we are to love people more as they get worse. The only way that is possible is by the supernatural intervention of Jesus Christ in our lives. And the reason why I say that, guys, some of you, you say you love all people, but you really, really hate Democrats. Hey, look, we're gonna talk honest in this church. You love all people, but you really, really hate the radical left, or you really, really hate Black Lives Matter, or you really, really hate people that jump the border, right? You really hate them. You say you love them, but you don't because your words reflect your heart. That's a biblical thing, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And sometimes, I'm not saying you have to agree with all these people. I'm not saying you have to agree with any of that but I am saying you have to love them according to Jesus Christ. That we have to love all people, all people. And as bad as humanity gets, as as much as hatred and hostility amplifies, the love of the church for humanity should also amplify. As hard as it gets to follow the teachings of the Bible, the more the church has to stick to the teachings of the Bible. This is what the word of God says, right? As the world grows darker, we should grow lighter right? We should grow even more bright in our faith and our dedication to Christ. Verse 13 informs us that it is also by the the, the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can live blameless and holy lives that honor God and bless others. Blameless means exactly what you think blameless would mean, innocent, that you've done nothing wrong. Holy means to live set apart from the world in a way that honors God, right? Basically living by God's standard, not the world's standard. And I'm gonna talk about this more here in a second, but this is another thing that we can only achieve by the grace of God, by having a relationship with God. And then at the end of chapter three, just like these other chapters, he ends with God's second coming, with Christ's second coming. The only way we're able to live holy lives and escape the judgment of God hope I explain this well. 
The only way to escape God's judgment is to be one with the judge. What that means is this. The book of Matthew informs us that Jesus, and the book of Revelation informs us that Jesus Christ will judge the quick and the dead. He will judge everyone that's ever existed, right? Jesus Christ will hold every single person accountable for every word and deed. It says that in the book of Matthew. It also says in the book of Matthew that there will be a book of our lives written of the things that we have done. Now, that's a very scary thought if we are not Christians. To think of everything evil I've done recorded that's a big, thick book, right? And a lot of you probably have big, thick books if you're not careful. The difference with Jesus Christ is this. Because the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, his blood paid for all of our sins, if we ask Jesus to forgive us, the Bible says that all of the evil that we have done has been erased and forgotten. So if we have lived in a relationship with Jesus and if we have repented for sin, when we stand in front of the great judge, Jesus Christ, and he opens up the book of our life, there will be nothing bad in there. That's beautiful, right? There's nothing bad in there. The way that we escape the, the, the judgment of Christ is not only by being one with the judge that forgives us of our sin. Jesus the judge is also Jesus the defense attorney. That when, we, when, when, when accusations are brought up or, or when the question is asked, I should say, how did you live your life? That Jesus, the defense attorney, stands in front of us and says, they are covered, right? I can vouch for them. That's called justification. I can vouch for them. My blood has forgiven them of their sin. It has washed them of all wrongdoing. They are holy and they are righteous. This is what Jesus does for us. This is how we escape his wrath, escape his judgment. The cross has opened up forgiveness, salvation. Not only that, the cross has opened up the, the, the ability for us to have the Holy Spirit of God which gives us the power to live in a way that honors God today, right now, that we can live in an honorable manner. What chapter three of Thessalonians is about is about righteous living. It is about living the way that God wants us to live. Now, righteousness is another one of those words that we talk about, but we don't always define it very well. Let me do my best. So, to be righteous means to have a moral standard. And there is, listen, there is an absolute moral standard, a bar in which all humans are called to live by. We do not set that bar. That bar is set by the creator God. Why does he get to set it? Because he's the creator God. He created all things, right? Spoke the universe into existence. Knew you before you were knit together in your mother's womb. He puts all things together. He can, he can dismantle all things. You see this in the book of Revelation, right? So because he is the creator God, listen, God sets the standard of what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. So if God sets the standard for what is good and evil and right is wrong, we then ask the question, well, how do we know what that is? Here is why God is so good. God has left right and wrong, good and evil. He has not left it ambiguous. It's right here. So we have this book that tells us what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, how we are to live our lives. Not only do we have this book that takes all the ambiguity out of what is good and bad, we also have the Holy Spirit that convicts us when we are living apart from those principles. I'm shocked by how many Christians hate 
conviction. They hate it. People will leave this church sometimes, right? Because I will cover a part of the scripture that says that certain things are wrong. Your hatred is wrong. Your racism is wrong. You, you having sex outside of marriage is wrong. These things are wrong. And people feel that conviction and they're offended and they leave. It's the equivalent to if someone's driving off a cliff and you get mad at the passenger saying, hey, you better turn or we're gonna die, right? How dare you? How dare you tell me how to drive this car, right? I didn't write this book. Don't get upset at me. That is the conviction of the Holy Spirit because God loves you and doesn't want you to live eternally separated from him. You should welcome conviction. My God, if I am strained from you, make me sick to my stomach, right? We should want that. So listen, not only is the standard clear, but the Holy Spirit speaks to us and directs us and convicts us, and that is beautiful. So righteousness is the bar that God sets for our life, okay? Unfortunately, that's not the culture you live in. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where the God of our culture is the individual. That is called self-righteousness. Or if you wanna get fancy, moral relativism, which means every single one of us in this room get to dictate what is right and wrong for us. Is this not the society you live in? Have you not noticed? There's probably a thousand people in this room, right? Imagine, apart from the Bible, if you were to go to the thousand people in this room and say, what is right and wrong? Tell me what good and evil is. You'd get a thousand different answers. And this is the society we live in, right? 340 million people in the United States that all get to determine what their own standard of righteousness is. And it doesn't take a genius to see that logistically it just doesn't work. Self-righteousness has not served us well. Why? Because when you invoke 330 million opinions and when you invoke that there is no standard of what is right and wrong, all you do is you invoke chaos. It becomes absolute madness. This is why that our culture looks the way it does right now. Because without a biblical worldview of what is right and wrong, we're incapable of weathering the storms of life because we keep creating the storms of life. We can't weather it because we keep manufacturing it. And this is why a morally relativistic society never works. No empire that has ever been created has stood the test of time because they move apart from the things of God. They live by the, the good and, and, and evil of the individual and everything falls apart. That's why the United States is inevitable, uh, in, inevitably going to fall apart. The more we move away from the principles of God, right? The more we move away from for an absolute standard of what is right and wrong, the more we will fall into decline and the more we, were, we are inevitably driving off the cliff we just talked about. It is going to happen. No, never in our country, right? Never in this nation under God. On a side note, tell me a country on planet Earth that puts out the filth that the United States puts out. Tell me one. Seriously. Name me a nation on planet Earth that puts out the filth uh, in music, in movies. Tell me more violent places. When Vladimir Putin has to give us a lesson on morality like he did a couple of weeks ago, we're in a pretty bad place, aren't we? You can go ahead and read that. You can Google that, right? That's what we have become. 
Moral relativism does not work. There has to be an absolute standard of right and wrong. So if we agree that God's standard is the correct standard, how in the world do we do that? How do we accomplish that? To live righteous, holy lives, the first thing is we have to depend on Jesus. Well, Corey, pastors say that all the time. I mean, you have to depend on this. Regardless of what you feel in the moment, because the book of Jeremiah says your feelings will deceive you, right? But if we believe that this is true, we have to lean on these principles. We have to lean on these teachings. We have to lean on the character and identity of Jesus. Not only do we have to lean on his understanding and not ours, we have to live in his love, which means you cannot get your affirmation from this world because it'll never be enough. But this is why social media is such a big thing, is it not? Because we are a culture addicted to pats on the back, right? Now, I'm gonna tell you, it'll never be enough. If you're looking for me to be your affirmation, it'll never be enough. Let me tell you something. This is very, very wise words, right? Someone told it to me, so I'm not taking credit for it. We all have to learn to encourage ourselves in the Lord, which means we have to have a relationship where we get our affirmation and love and identity from him. We have to live in his love. We have to read and obey his word, and we have to find encouragement in the local church. If we will do these things, this is how we will stand in an increasingly hostile world. It's the only way. And this pursuit of holiness, this pursuit of righteousness, of the things of God, it can never stop because we are never complete until he comes back or until we drop dead, right? We are never complete. We must keep on gravitating more to the things of God. And we need that more and more as time goes on. Here's the other thing. You're going to mess up. The first thing everyone thinks when I say we can be holy, blameless, the Bible says we can even be more than overcomers. The Bible says that. How is that possible when we make mistakes? It's possible because we live in the grace and mercy of God. That means that when we make a mistake, we are quick to run back to the Father and say, God, I am sorry. Not only am I sorry, I'm going to separate myself from the things that tempt me and the things that cause me to sin, right? That means if you struggle with alcoholism, don't hang out at bars, right? If you struggle with lust, don't be hanging out at the internet at two in the morning. It's simple things that not only do we ask for forgiveness, we move away from that. And we receive God's grace, we receive his mercy, and we receive his help if we are willing to want to do better, if we have a desire to do better. Not that we're ever perfect, but we will move further away from sin and closer to Jesus if we want to. And in this, listen, you can live a blameless life. Let me tell you what that means. You can go to bed at night not drowning in your guilt and shame. I don't care what you've done. If you have asked Christ to forgive you of your sin, right? Sin is the problem and God can alleviate us of our sin. Forgive us and move us away from our sin so we can be blameless. So guilt and shame do not riddle us in our life. I hear Christians all the time saying, oh, pray for the guilt and shame. I'm gonna pray for the sin. And if the sin goes away, the guilt and shame will take care of itself, right? We gotta work on the problem. The root is sin. We can live blameless lives if we want to. Not perfect, but blameless. 
We can live holy lives, peaceful lives, victorious lives. I should have underlined this word. Again, I'm so tired of Christians saying, ah, broken, messed up, dirty. What sin are you trying to make an excuse for in your life right now? That's all my brain goes to. When the Bible says that we can be more than overcomers, it means that we do not have to be addicted. It means that we do not have to be materialistic or self-centered. It means that we can be delivered, we can be changed. Again, Romans chapter six, you are no longer a slave to your former self, Paul says, that we can do this. And we don't talk about victory and deliverance enough in the Christian church. I think because we want a safety blanket for our sin. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We can also live joyous lives. All of this is contingent on if we will humble ourselves and chase after the things of God and stop chasing after the things of this world. I told you the irony though of a relationship with Jesus is if you give it all up for Jesus, Jesus returns that with more than you could possibly imagine. If we will just decrease and he increases in our life, we are the ones that are blessed for that. I don't know if you know this or not. God has nothing to gain from us. We are the only ones that gain from a relationship with God. But our problem in the United States right now, I'm not saying it doesn't exist elsewhere, but it's really big right now. The problem is, is the God of our culture is the God of individual. Self-righteousness. Couple of minutes, let me tell you something. The basis of all satanic thought is not worshiping the devil. I don't know if you guys have ever studied much about Satanism. Satanism was officially founded by Anton Svander LeVay in the 1960s. Um, there was a split in the satanic church recently. Now they have one in Salem, Mass., one in San Francisco, California. It's two different denominations, if you will, of the satanic church, but it's been around roughly for about 60 years. That's officially. Before the satanic church started in the 1960s, the, the kind of grandfather of the satanic movement was an occultist named Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley came up with a law called the Law of Thelema. And the Law of Thelema is the bedrock of satanic principles and thought. Now, I don't know, here's where, I, I don't know if you knew this about Satanists. Most Satanists don't believe in the devil. They're atheists. They don't believe in a devil. They don't believe in a God. They believe Satan is an archetype for doing what you want to do. That we are to live as individuals, self-righteous, that we determine what is right and wrong for us. Back to the law of Thelema. When Aleister Crowley created the law of Thelema, the law of Thelema is simply, simply this. Do as thou wilt is the whole of the law. Modern day terms, do what you wanna do, that's all you have to worry about. This is the society you live in. This is the culture you live in, driven by what is at the fundamental bottom root of satanic thought. That's what you live in right now in the United States. It is the individual. No one can tell me what is right or wrong for me. I determine that. Now listen, if you think I'm just crazy, just go back to Genesis chapter three and look at the conversation between the devil and Eve. The devil never tried to get Eve to worship the devil. The devil said, don't you know that you can be like God? Who says you can't eat that fruit? Eat it and you will be opened up. Your mind will be opened up like God's. 
This is the culture you live in. And we have to choose, do we want to go our way or do we want to humble ourselves and submit to the righteousness and the, and, and the, and the bar, the standard of the creator God? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Oh, thank you. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you are in this room and you are not a believer, maybe you do not have a relationship with God, up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Muhammad. If you have any questions for Pastor Muhammad, he'd love to talk with you. Any questions at all. We also have men and women at the front of the stage if you need prayer for anything. I don't know if anyone's ever been like this in their life. There have been times when I didn't have the strength to pray for myself. If you don't have that strength right now, come up here and let someone else pray with you, pray for you. The last thing is we have communion all the way around this room. Um, I went a little bit longer today, but I'm gonna ask you for a favor. Today, if you want, the bread and the wine, wherever you see a lamp on a table, represents the body and blood of Jesus. If you wanna go up and get that and go back to your seat, Pastor Greg is gonna walk us through communion, okay? We haven't done that in a while. But you have to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. But before we do that, I just wanna pray with you real quick. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord. God, I pray that you keep your hand on all of us in this room. Lord, all of us in this room are surrounded by distractions, temptations, Lord. It is so easy for us to go our way, God, versus yours. But I just pray that you give us all strength, Lord, to humble ourselves, to submit ourselves to you, God. And Lord, just to know in our minds and our hearts that your way is the only way, Father. Lord, we love you. Protect everyone in this room and keep them safe till we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, guys. I hope you have a good weekend, good Halloween.